his first college action to send us to overtime. Welcome to the Chatting Yardage Podcast, presented by Sports Drink. Now, here's your host, Cam Matthews. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood college football podcast. Welcome to Chatting Yardage, brought to you, of course, by our friends at Sports Drink, part of the larger Chatting Average family. Boy, oh boy, week one has come and gone in the 2022 college football season. And folks, I tell you, it certainly lived up to expectations. It was, uh, it certainly uh, quenched the thirst for those of us that have been waiting so long for college football to return from the absolute mayhem of the backyard brawl on Thursday night between Pitt and West Virginia which was a tremendous game start to finish decided by you know one one interception late in the fourth quarter all the way through the madness of Saturday's slate you know high scoring affairs games that you know were decided by goal line stands and you know blowouts by returning champions and it was just just incredible absolutely incredible and it's fitting that we are, you know, 15 years, you know, every, everybody talks about anniversaries usually in increments of five, right? So we're now a decade and a half past the 2007 season, which for everybody's money is the craziest college football season we've ever seen. You know, it all started off with Appalachian upsetting Michigan in the big house. And then from there, you know, you had all the turmoil with teams ranked number two. I believe in seven of the last nine weeks, the number two team lost. That's how much turnover there was within that top top ranking uh, throughout that entire season. But it was just one of those seasons where where nobody nobody seemed to be running away uh, with, with with championship hopes. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily going to be going to be the story this year but in terms of just ultimate chaos week in week out right I I think I feel like that's just what we're what we're in store for and I can't wait to see it you know I think yeah we're, we're week one is always great but then weeks two and three are typically a little a little bit quieter simply because you get away from the the bigger matchups that you see in the very first week, because obviously, you know, it's a painting, it's a, it's a ratings pop. It's, you know, an enticement to get excited about the season. And then usually, you know, you see your bigger teams play lesser teams, um, in, in the, in the following weeks, but there's still so many fun storylines this season, uh, you know, and this upcoming weekend, which we'll get into later for us to follow. So I, Week one, you know, around my house was was awesome. You know, we we kind of always treat it like like a holiday, almost. You know, it, it's one of those things where you wake up on Saturday morning and you know 
you went to a high school game the night before and you've spent the last couple of nights watching football, you know, watching on Thursday and then again, you know, watching some late games on Friday, but you wake up that Saturday morning, you you just you roll out of bed with this this anticipation of the season and, and it's starting and so one fun thing uh that that we did uh this year to kind of celebrate the, the kickoff of a new football season because myself and you know all of my buddies that I, that I live around you know and and my my cousins we're all we're all huge football fans right and we all happen to live on the same little dirt roads so all of our houses are within walking distance you know we live out in the sticks kind of in our own little community you know fun times right so what we did this past Saturday is we made an entire day out of out of the week one the the first Saturday of football. Um, we celebrated with a, with a late breakfast at my house where you know of course there were there was coffee and, and snacks and, and you know breakfast foods and bloody marys and you know and that sort of thing and then we transitioned over to somebody else's house uh later in the afternoon and you know and did more finger foods and you know had some drinks and, and then that night we finished it off at somebody else's house you know where we where we had barbecue sandwiches and you know i that that's that sort of thing where it was just a day of, of hanging out and, and watching football and eating great food and having a few beverages. And, you know, I think I, I went to, it, it sounds so incredibly cheesy, you know, to say it as I'm thinking of it now, but I went to bed that, that Saturday night thinking, man, that was a perfect day. Like it was an absolutely perfect day. And so I hope that you, as college football fans, because obviously if you weren't, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast, I hope that you were able to celebrate in uh, in one way or another uh, this past Saturday. Uh, a few games that I watched, you know, uh, of course, being a Carolina fan, I, I, I had to watch uh, Carolina and Appalachian go toe-to-toe and you know, the first quarter was about, of a, about as a rough of a quarter as the, the, the Heels could have played, uh, down 21-7 to seven after the first 15 minutes. And then, uh, then you know, second quarter, the defense finally buckled down and the offense started to click. And, you know, Carolina scores uh, 21 unanswered points. And, you know, they go into halftime up. And then third quarter, more of the same. And, you know, the, their lead grows. And all of a sudden, you look around. It's the start of the fourth quarter, and you're up by 20. And then that fourth quarter happens. And, you know, I'm not going to go over the fourth quarter because I'm sure you've heard everything about it there is to hear. But just absolute calamity. You know, one point shy of setting the all-time combined single-quarter score record, right? 62 points in the fourth quarter. 40, 40 of those for Appalachia. Just an insane, an insane game um, that I'm sure took a couple of years off of my life. Uh, but, you know, Heels came away with a victory, and, and that's that's all that mattered. Uh, once you get into the uh, – once you get into that – the afternoon slate you know you start watching Arkansas and Cincinnati and you're flipping back and forth between that and Oregon Georgia which within the first quarter you probably unless you're a dogs fan you probably flip back over to Cincinnati and Arkansas because there really wasn't much of a game there uh, between the Ducks and the dogs a bit of a bit of a rough outing uh, for the green clad guys um 
Cincinnati and, and Arkansas was just a, another really fun game, and you know Sam Pittman gave us already one of our best post-game interviews of the season so far. It's going to be a contender uh, by the end of the year. Scott for Scott's here. You ever want to grow new grass faster? Kind of like when you press the two times playback button on your podcast so you can speed through episodes. Except it's Scott's turf build a rapid grass. You're speeding your way from a thin and damaged lawn to a thicker, stronger one in just weeks. Bit too fast, maybe slow it down. Okay. Let's just go back to normal speed. Get a bag of Scott's Turf Builder Rapid Grass today. It grows grass two times faster than seed alone when applied at the new lawn rate subject to proper care. Feed your lawn. Feed it. Uh, talking about having a, having a cold beer uh, after, after the game and... Need I remind you, this is a this is a Sam Pittman podcast. We are we are pro Pittman around here, um, but yeah, just a, a tremendous Saturday. And I think it, it's 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 so neat that when this time of year finally comes back around, more so than just about any other sport, at least at least especially here in the South, does college football transform? day-to-day life for just about everybody and what I mean by that is that you know Sunday if you went out and you know you you went to church or you went to the grocery store and you happen to speak to somebody happen to bump into somebody you know at least for me odds are that conversation at some point was going to touch on games from the day before you know you don't necessarily get that with baseball or basketball or even really the NFL at least not in this area it's all about, hey, did you see that interception that Florida had at the end of the game against Utah? Or, man, Carolina's got to find some defense. It could be a long season. They got lucky there on that two-point conversion. It's that sort of thing where, you know, mixed in with, with the handshakes and the greetings, it's talking about defense and top plays from the day before because that's what this time of year is is all about. And I tell you, it just it makes me so excited to, to see what else is going to come this year. And I'm happy that you are along the ride with me uh, as, as we go through this podcast on this coming season. Uh, quick note, just remind you that you can follow the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. There you will find uh, just fun little quips and watch-alongs on, on games that are going on as best as I can. And, of course, uh, we'll, we'll throw a poll out there. Every now and then, you know, our poll last week was asking if Scott Frost would be the head coach at Nebraska in 2023, and overwhelmingly, uh, the answer was no. I believe it was, uh, uh, I believe it was around 80 something percent uh, answered no on that one. So not a not a lot of confidence in the uh, the head of the Huskers. So we'll certainly see how that uh, how that comes down the stretch again, as we talked about last week. You know, if he makes it, makes it to October first, then that buyout gets cut in half to seven and a half million, uh, and they've they've got they've got a few tough games between now and then. Uh, so that's enough of me rambling, and we'll go ahead and get on with the show. First segment, four down territory. First down. On Friday, the college football playoffs executive board approved an expansion to twelve teams bringing to an end more than more than a three-year endeavor in conversation. The model grants automatic bids to the six highest-ranked conference champions and gives first-round buys to the highest-ranked four champions and completes the field with six at-large selections. 
first round games between seeds 5 through 12 are expected to be played on campus or at a location designated by the better seed. And a rotation of six bowls will host quarterfinals and semifinals. So this will start in either 2024 or 2026, depending, of course, on whether the final vote is unanimous and, of course, developing an updated broadcast plan because, at the end of the day, this is all about money, right? So why is this good, at least for now? And I've seen the conversation of, oh, well, the playoff expansion was inevitable. And then I've also seen the conversation of, no, we, you know, what's the likelihood of a, of a 12 seed beating a 1 seed, yada, yada, yada. But does that matter? And here, here's why I say that. Well, for one, the college football playoff is still the best format that we have found, period, uh, in terms of legitimacy. The AP era was determined by a slew of sports writers who in no way captured the appropriate teams to be at the top, be at the top year in and year out. I mean, we've watched co- countless documentaries where, you know, an Oklahoma team or a Nebraska team or a Miami team at the end of the year has to claim that they were number one despite going undefeated and defeating numerous top five teams simply because another team was crowned the, quote, national champion by the AP. And then, of course, the BCS era saw a computer incapable of the eye test determining the championship game. So, obviously, it feels as though that we're in the best system possible in terms of crowning who the number one team in the country is at the end of the year. But that's not to say that the college football playoff doesn't have its flaws. Over the eight-year CFP era, six teams have accounted for 25 of the 32 playoff spots. That is 78%. Parity is a real problem when it comes to the playoff. Last year, three of the five power conferences were not represented in the in the playoff. That's the second time that that has happened in the CFP's eight years. Now, I'm not arguing that teams should be less talented or more talented to get into the playoff. But when you look at it from, from the offset of that scenario, from a revenue standpoint, from an entertainment standpoint, when you constantly get the same product over and over, things are going to start to decline in terms of money and ratings, right? Moreover, a four-team playoff only incorporates roughly 3% of the college football landscape into the conversation. Now, I'm not saying that we should expand to a 68-team field like the NCAA tournament does now, especially with the first-in you know, brackets added on over the past few years. But when you look at the fact that four teams only encompasses 3% of all of college football, it's an interesting idea to, to note expansion within the playoff. So it remains to be seen if it'll hold true, but the expansion of the playoffs' top priority is increasing parity in the sport. Um, It is believed that that is the viewpoint of why this is being done. And when you look at previous years, even in late November, as many as 30 teams could still be in the mix to make the field. 30 teams. Can you imagine that final week, that rivalry week, just before conference championships, having 30 teams whether you know it's at large or in line to appear in a conference championship that could be in the mix to be in the college football playoff. It sounds like exciting an exciting product to me. So combine that with NILs being so heavily involved in recruiting now and for, for a smaller school to be able to somewhat routinely make the college football playoff, 
just like a smaller basketball school making the tournament routinely, it can only help these schools recruit. That, that, that's another big point about this, especially in an era where recruiting is seeing even less parity. The nation's top recruits are going to a handful of schools that you can count on one hand at this point. So to increase parity in not only who makes the postseason, but also where these kids would consider going to school is only going to raise all ships, you know, being a higher tide and all. So finally, when you look at how many players have sat out, not only lower tier bowl games, but even final conference games, looking ahead to the draft, it can only be good for the sport to create a larger emphasis on football's postseason. Because quite frankly, college football's postseason still has plenty to be desired. Some might even tell you it sucks once we get past the conference championship games. So enticing the sport's best young players to continue playing under the hopes of chasing a legitimate championship instead of a meaningless corporate-sponsored bowl game in Random City, USA, can only be good news for the sport. So before you jump to conclusions about whether or not this is a good idea, consider those points that it's good for parity, it's good for recruiting, and it's good for overall talent because it's going to keep guys on the field longer rather than sitting out games. Is it going to be a perfect system? Who knows? We we will have plenty of years to figure that out. You know, if, if 10 years from now we say, oh, well, you know, 10 of the 12 teams have been in the college football playoff, you know, the past five years, then maybe there is a parity issue. And maybe the, the playoff was not their idea all along and there's something else to be figured out. But, in my opinion, things are certainly heading in the right direction. Second down. One thing that makes college football so great are the rivalries. And along with those unique trophies with associated said rivalries. Whether it be a water jug, a golden hat, or even an old steam engine bell, it, all, it is always neat to see the unique trophies fought over by two schools. The BYU-Utah State rivalry has come to a head 90 times since 1922 and have fought over the old wagon wheel since 1948. Brigham Young currently leads the rivalry 50-37-3 and has won the last two meetings. However, this year's meeting in September will be their last meeting for the foreseeable future as BYU prepares to enter the Big 12. So, here's hoping, unlike the Backyard Brawl, another rivalry paused to conference jumping, we don't have to wait another 11 years to see another meeting at this year's clash. Third down. After a proper dismantling of Oregon in week one, my apologies to any Ducks fan out there, Georgia firmly planted their flag in the stance of, there is no championship hangover here. But could this have possibly been the most impressive start to a post-trophy season? So what I've done is I've pulled the last five opening weekend contests for the previous year's national champion. So we go back to 2017, Alabama, defending national champion, defeats Louisville 51-14, and eventually went on to lose to Clemson in the national championship. The next year, Clemson, your reigning national champion, defeats Georgia Tech in an opening contest, a conference contest. matchup 52-14, to where they would then go on to lose to LSU in the national championship. 2019, LSU loses to Mississippi State 
44 to 34, but then went on to defeat Ole Miss in the Magnolia Bowl, despite finishing five and five on the season. If you remember, historic turnover at that program after winning uh, winning a national championship, and then of course uh, 2020 Alabama takes the natty. Then goes on to defeat number 14 Miami 44 to 13 in week one. But then, of course, lost to Georgia in a thrilling national championship game. And then Georgia, of course, demolishes Oregon this past Saturday. So I say all of this to say that it, it it's interesting, of course, looking at the past five years and seeing how many teams have exactly played stiff competition. Uh, in week one following a national championship game. I mean, 17-18 uh, were unranked opponents. 2019 saw the reigning champ lose to an unranked team. And then last year, uh, or year before last, and, and or yeah, last year, that's right. I'm confusing myself looking at my own notes. Uh, Alabama defeated a number 14 Miami team. Now, you know, uh, Miami didn't have the greatest season last year either, despite high hopes, so... Looking up and down that, you know, Georgia defeating a, a top 15 Oregon Ducks team in the manner that they did, you know, your, your fairest comparison is last year to Alabama defeating Miami 44-13 to 13 because <clears throat> Miami was ranked and the rest of these opponents haven't been over the past five years. So wh- what does this mean necessarily uh, for, for Georgia moving forward? Who knows? But Georgia looked awful impressive on Saturday, and for anybody claiming championship hangover or they're not the same team as last year, you might be in for a rude awakening, but because given the eye test through one week, the dogs aren't going anywhere. Fourth down. So another change came to college football last week, but of course was quickly overshadowed by the announcement of the playoff expansion. And was that the announcement of a new transfer portal system? Now, of course, the transfer portal has become a, a, a big point in all of college sports the past couple of years. No matter what the sport is, we're seeing transfers at, you know, at a historic clip of, you know, folks going to different schools to seek new opportunities. But it hasn't exactly been the easiest system to get through either, you know, whether it's having to sit out a certain number of games or technically being ineligible for an entire season. Uh, so the new transfer portal rules fall like this. So for fall sports, including college football, the NCAA added a window to transfer from May 1st to 15th or a 45-day window, quote, the day after championship selections are made in their sport. The same goes for spring sports, but instead of May... They are December 1st through 15th. For winter sports like college basketball, the NCAA added a 60-day window after championships are selected. The NCAA is hoping these windows can make life easier for students who want to transfer because, like I said, it hasn't exactly been a proper system. As we have seen in as recently as the FAMU ineligible player disaster in Week 0, there still remains a lot to be desired throughout the whole process for schools and athletes alike, but... Here's to hoping that with this new system and with a more clear window, an additional window, that these kids can make these decisions for themselves, that it will not impact anybody's performance on the field or on the court. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Four Down Territory. You know, I search high and low and I try to bring you kind of some of the larger 
larger news stories of the week uh, for that segment. But also, I try to bring you a few fun ones here and there as well. So if you ever happen to stumble across a, a fun story idea that more people need to know about, be sure to shoot it my way at Chatting Yardage uh, on Twitter. So now that that segment is out of the way, we will send things back to our official mascot correspondent for this week's Mascot Minute. Here's Alex Butler. Hey everybody, this is Alex Butler here with this week's Mascot Minute, where we take a deep dive into some of your favorite collegiate mascots. This week, we'll be looking into Big Al, the elephant mascot from the University of Alabama Crimson Tide. The origin of the mascot dates back to 1930. On October 8, 1930, a sports writer for the Atlanta Journal, Everett Strupper, wrote about the previous weekend's Alabama Ole Miss football game. He wrote, That Alabama team of 1930 is a typical Coach Wallace Wade machine. Powerful, big, tough, fast, aggressive, well-schooled in fundamentals, and the best blocking team for this early in the season that I have ever seen. When those big brutes hit you, I mean you go down and stay down, often for two additional minutes. Strupper, using the flair for the dramatic common in sports writing at the time, wrote, At the end of the quarter, the earth started to tremble. There was a distant rumble that continued to grow. Some excited fan in the stands bellowed, Hold your horses, the elephants are coming, and outstamped this Alabama varsity. Strupper and other writers would continue to refer to Alabama as the Red Elephants, or the Red, as a nod to the players' crimson jerseys, and the name stuck throughout what became a national championship season and beyond. Despite the nickname, it would be nearly five decades before Alabama recognized the animal as its official mascot. However, elephants featured prominently to game day tradition long before this point. Throughout the 1940s, for instance, the university kept a live elephant mascot named Alamite that was a regular sight on game days, and it would carry the year's homecoming queen onto the field every year prior to kickoff at a homecoming game. By the 1950s, keeping a live elephant year-round proved to be too expensive for the university. Instead, the UA Spirit Committee started hiring elephants, often from traveling circuses passing through Tuscaloosa for every homecoming. In the early 1960s, Melford Espy Jr., then a student, was the first to wear an elephant head costume to portray the Crimson Tide's unofficial mascot. Espy later became a university administrator, and football coach Paul Bear Bryant asked him to take responsibility when student groups asked to resurrect the costumed mascot in the late 1970s. The mascot known as Big Al today was the brainchild of University of Alabama student Walt Tart, member of Tau Kappa Epsilon fraternity. He was meeting with the homecoming chairman, Ann Page, in 1979 as they were trying to come up with something different for the school's homecoming parade. He told Ann that several schools in the Southeastern Conference had obtained mascot costumes and proposed that the University of Alabama should get one as well. After contacting the University of Kentucky and a few other schools, Walt was able to discover that mascots were designed and constructed by the Walt Disney Company. He contacted Disney and received a price quote for the design and construction of the elephant costume. Since funding for the costume would have to come from the athletic department, Walton and set up a meeting with Coach Bryant, as he was not only the football coach, but also the athletic director at the university. While they were waiting for their appointment with Coach Bryant, Walt told Ann that they needed to be professional and not ask for the coach's autograph. She agreed. Coach Bryant was very easy to talk to and teased them about having the real elephant on the field and the mess it would make. They assured him that it was just a person in an elephant costume and not a real one, to which the coach gave a big grin and said he knew all along. 
He said he thought elephants were very smart and a little slow, but overall the meeting went very well as Coach Bryant said they could have the funds for the elephant costume. As they were leaving, Ann asked for his autograph, as did Walt. They both left accomplishing their mission as well as getting the autograph of the greatest college football coach to date. The Big Owl mascot officially debuted at the 1979 Sugar Bowl when the 1979 Alabama Crimson Tide football team defeated the Arkansas Razorbacks. Are there any mascots that you'd like us to feature on Mascot Minute? Hit us up on Twitter at Chatting Yardage to let us know. Once again, I'm Alex Butler and this has been your Mascot Minute. It is now that time of the week for our pick six games here on Chatting Yardage, which is, of course, where I pick six games of the upcoming weekend slate that I'm interested in, and you should be too. First game of the weekend I want to bring a bring a mention to will be on Saturday at 3.30. This game will be on ABC. It is number 24, Tennessee, going up against number 17, Pitt, at Pitt. Now, Pitt, of course, comes off an emotional week one performance against West Virginia, while Tennessee is fresh off the heels of an offensive thumping against Ball State, where the Volunteers put up over 500 yards of total offense just this past Saturday. So, despite being ranked lower than Pitt, easy for me to say, the Vols are a near seven-point favorite as it stands right now, and of course, that could change before Saturday. But right now, they're a near seven-point favorite despite being ranked lower. So with both teams really looking to establish their place in the conversation of their respective conferences this year and, you know, kind of looking to establish their their new identity, this could be a fun one. So be on the lookout for that one. Uh, second game of the week to be on the lookout for, it will be on Saturday at 7 p.m. on ESPN. It will be number 20, Kentucky, going, on, going up against number 12, Florida. Of course, SEC rivalry game early in the season. Always fun to, to kind of see these uh, see these games come together. But this is a game between two teams whose narratives could not have been more different entering the season. So Kentucky came into this season, you know, came into 2022 uh, really with high expectations, looking to take the next step forward. Whereas Florida was perceived to be rebuilding coming into this season, you know, after after an unfortunate, or not unfortunate, after a lackluster uh, showing by Dan Mullins, who was shown the door uh, last season before the season had even concluded, and the hiring of Billy Napier, I think there was a lot of questions about what Florida was going to look like this year, you know, what was in store for the Gators, and then they go out and they beat a, a top 10 team in Utah, you know, the Pac-12 playoff hopeful Utah Utes uh, in, in an impressive showing. So I, I think it's it's an interesting dynamic for both of these teams that you know they're both desperately trying to come out of the gate hot, and this is a game that really it feels like neither one can necessarily afford to lose uh, based on what they're trying to accomplish this season. Florida does hold a huge lead in wins throughout these teams' uh, two meetings. I mean, it is nowhere close in terms of all-time record. But Kentucky did take the most recent contest of 2021. So this is going to be a fun one. Two high-powered offenses, two conference rivals, two teams trying to prove doubters in the media or even at their own university wrong about their football team. All right, uh, third game of the week will happen on Saturday, 12 p.m. start on ESPN. It is South Carolina traveling to number 16, Arkansas. So, 
again, a couple of SEC foes. Uh, it's always fun to see conference games this early in the season, especially on week two, which, you know, historically has always had somewhat of a weaker slate, especially for your larger teams. But two SEC foes, uh, the Gamecocks took their last meeting in 2017. It's been five years since these teams met, and, and uh, South Carolina came away with the victory in that one, 48-22. Now, of course, these are both brand-new teams, especially Arkansas. Uh, five years ago, Arkansas went 4-8. and eight. Now we're coming off of a very impressive 2021 campaign with even higher hopes for this year. Uh, so it's it's a it's a much different feel, but even still, I think those players are still, even though they weren't there, you have to wonder, you know, how much you think about the fact that you're playing up against a school that your school lost to uh, the last time they met. Now the Hogs did make quite the statement last Saturday in, in beating Cincinnati, but South Carolina is also going to be playing with a bit of a chip on their shoulder, you have to feel like. Uh, they are they have to be di- trying to disprove the notion of, of a rebuild. Um, you know, despite the fact that they made a bowl last year, you know, it wasn't necessarily a, a high bowl. They, you know, of course, did defeat North Carolina in the Dukes-Mayo Bowl. You know, I, they're still a long way away from being in the upper elite of the Southeastern Conference. But, a team that doesn't necessarily have anything to lose like the Gamecocks do against a team that has to be feeling some kind of pressure to continue building on what they've done so far uh, could make for an interesting matchup. Not putting that game on upset alert, but I don't think it'll be as much of a cakewalk for Arkansas as some think it'll be, at least not in the initial phases of the game. Fourth game of the week to be on the lookout for. This one occurs on Saturday night, 10.15 p.m. Uh, So if you're looking for a good late-night contest, here it is. Number 9, Baylor, going up against number 21, BYU. Funny enough, this is only the fourth time ever, uh, only fourth fourth all-time meeting between uh, these these two teams. The last one, of course, coming last season, though, with the Bears taking a a two-touchdown victory. However... The interesting note about this game, other than the fact that, of course, it's two two ranked opponents uh, meeting this early in the season, is the fact that this could be the last time that these two teams meet as non-conference opponents. You know, bear in mind that BYU is heading to the Big 12 next season, so this kind of meeting could become somewhat of a regular thing. It should be a good game, but it's also going to be a really fun preview of what the Big 12 can and will look like in the years to come once Brigham Young makes makes the jump. And like I said, if you're looking for a quality late game after the primetime game is over, this is yours. So again, that is a 10.30 kickoff, or 10.15 kickoff, rather, on ESPN. And a quick reminder, you know, I, I, always, I will be posting these games in a, in a good little guide graphic um, on the Twitter account each and every single week, so that way you can keep up with those. Fifth game of the week to be on the lookout for. This one will be a 7.30 kickoff. And these, are, of course, all are all uh, Eastern Standard Times, uh, if you haven't figured that out already. I know I have a few West Coast listeners out there, so uh, this is certainly going to be a game that interests you, Sam Near. Number 10, USC will take on the Stanford Cardinals. Now, this is Lincoln Riley's first official rivalry game as the head coach of the Trojans. Stanford defeated USC last year 42 to 28 despite going three and nine so a disappointing season for Stanford but still took down one of their larger rivals 
and are 5-2 and two against USC since 2014. This, this team seems to be a, a bit of the monkey on the back of Southern Cal that they just can't quite can't quite get a grip on. Um, so this is going to be a, a good test for Lincoln Riley. Uh, USC on paper is clearly the better team. You know, I, I think it's certainly easy to say that. But this again, just the narrative of Lincoln Riley and everything that occurred with him in the off season and making the jump to Southern Cal and now his first official rivalry game. I think. There's just a lot there that makes this one intriguing, and I think the intriguing fact of it is, can the Trojans figure it out? Another uh, interesting note about this game is that it will also be the 100th all-time meeting between the schools, uh, with USC leading by a heavy margin, but nonetheless, still plenty to think about here, and again, what does a loss mean for the new, uh, new head coach of USC? And our sixth game of the week is, it's on this list and not necessarily because I expect it to be a good game, and I don't think really anybody expects this one to be a good, close matchup, but it's number one Alabama going up against Texas at Texas Saturday, 12 o'clock game on Fox. Uh, College game day will also be on location at this one. Well, what's interesting about this one is just the, the significance of this, So, the significance of it is that Alabama has not played a true out-of-conference road game since 2011. This is, literally, this is their first out-of-conference road game in 11 years. Now, that, that does not include neutral site games such as national championships or bowl games. You know, a true non-conference road game. And Alabama is also coming off of a cupcake game against Utah State, while Texas had a pretty straightforward win against Louisiana Monroe. This is also the first time that these two teams have met since 2010, which Alabama won. However, before that, Texas had actually won the previous seven contests. So, you know, think a lot of things have changed since, since Texas was taking seven in a row uh, against the Crimson Tide, but it's it's an interesting and I'm not sure how much it's going to get mentioned but you know Alabama finally going on the road against a non-conference opponent in this one and so make no bones about it though this is Alabama's game to win without a doubt I don't think anybody has this on any kind of upset alert I don't even think anybody necessarily expects this to be a close one but with all eyes on this game at least until halftime Everyone will be looking to see where Texas stands so far in their ever-revolving rebuild. That has been your Pick 6 Games of the Week. Let's head to our final segment, folks. This is... The Extra Point. The Extra Point this week goes out to Wake Forest starting quarterback Sam Hartman, who has been cleared to return to action the school announced just this Tuesday. Hartman, a three-year starter, was sidelined last month with what the school termed a, quote, non-football injury. So a lot of a lot of mystery, a lot of unwarranted speculation in a situation like this, but nonetheless, a lot of, you know, a lot of wondering uh, what exactly the situation was. But on Tuesday, Wake Forest acknowledged that Hartman was diagnosed with Paget-Schroeder syndrome, also known as an effort thrombro- thrombosis, again, easy for me to say, which is a blood clot often associated with repeated strenuous activity. Hartman underwent surgery on August 9th to have the clot removed, and a follow-up ultrasound on Friday 
just this past week, confirmed that he had no signs of additional clotting. So hats off to Sam Hartman for making a full and healthy recovery. Here's hoping that uh, things continue to go well health-wise his way for the rest of the year. He's a heck of a quarterback, and the Demon Deacons, of course, uh, will be looking for another tremendous season for him as he finishes out his career at Wake Forest. So that is the end of this week's show. Again, thank you for joining us here on Chatting Yardage. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. Be part of the show. Be part of the conversation for you, the fans, the Yard Crew, I think I might call you guys. We are happy to have you. Thank you for listening. Uh, Playing us out this week is the spirit of the old Golden Black, the Wake Forest Marching Band with Here's to Wake Forest. I'm Cam Matthews. We'll see y'all next week. This has been the Chatting Yardage Podcast, brought to you by Sports Drink. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow the show on Twitter, at Chatting Yardage. We'll see you next week for another brand new episode.